Thank you, Jason, for that prayer. Thank you guys who have led us in worship today. I just have a couple of announcements uh, to make before we get started. I want to, uh, uh, first of all, just uh, let everybody know that this morning Judah caught the big lizard that's on the wall over there. That was, uh, yes, a super uh, significant moment. I kid you not, every day when I am leaving this office, I look over at that wall examining for the lizards, and uh, my girls and I have tried to capture them before, but the big one is what we've wanted, and he got it today. So uh, this is a big deal. (laughs) Um, I also want to just... uh, uh, mention briefly uh, again uh, Josh mentioned but my dear friend from Kentucky Brennan Hughes is here and uh, if uh, you haven't got to meet him uh, get around to him after services he's here as a person who is uh, so faithful and uh, such a man of God and a man of prayer and he's here to help us as as a prayer team and uh, Brennan at at the end of this service I want to ask you to come up and uh, pray for this church, pray for the, the marriages and the families here, if, if you don't mind. So at, at the end of the, of the sermon, you can stand there at the, the table and, and pray. Um, let, me, let me open this in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much that uh, you have called us together to worship you, and you've called us into families. And even with all the pain and brokenness that comes along with uh, our lives and families, you meet us there and you bless us. Would you take the next month that we have to focus on uh, growing in our family relationships, would you take that and make it transformative for us and and help us to see beautiful things now from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like we've said uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to raise this thing up. I was trying to deal with it down there. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, uh, like we've said, uh, we're going to s- stop uh, our exegetical sermons for right now. We're, we're ceasing with Matthew, and then we're transitioning to Exodus in September. And uh, when we kick off that, uh, that uh, new school year time, then uh, we will be turning to the book of Exodus. But between now and then, we're going to take a month to just highlight family relationships and how we can grow as disciples of Christ in our families. And the first thing that we're going to talk about, as is obvious today, is marriage. Now, I want to start by showing you two pictures in relatively recent times that encapsulate some of the modern views and one central understanding of marriage uh, that's out there in our society today, marriage and and, uh, romantic relationships. First, we have the literary masterpiece that was turned into a movie, Twilight. Uh, that picture may not be the best. I hope you can see it okay. Um, uh, I remember when Olivia and I, we were at some other movie years ago, and in the previews, they advertised this vampire movie. And it looked like they were running through the woods, and it was it, it's suspenseful and interesting, and I was like, man, we should go see that. So we did uh, when it came out. And somewhere in that movie, it's like I realized this is not what I was expecting for this vampire movie. Uh, so the, what that relationship encapsulates is this, this youthful desire for each other and this idolized relationship between a man and a woman. 
And uh, uh, that will serve as our icon for the uh, youthful, romanticized relationships that uh, people are into today. On the other hand, when I was a kid in the 90s, growing up, we had this TV show that came on. Anybody familiar with that? <laughs> Married with children. And this guy and his wife represent the cynical, the utterly cynical view of a marriage relationship once people grow older. You have then, uh, on the one hand, you have this utterly unrealistic, youthful, romanticized version of relationships. Now, on the other hand, you have an utterly cynical view of the marriage relationship when people get older and they have kids and they're just slugging it out, staying together in, in a home together. And I want to say to you that, first of all, it's, it's very interesting that we have these two pictures representative of marriage in our society. You've got the glorious youthful romance. You've got the disappointed, cynical, older people married relationship. Now, I realize that these things may be uh, caricatures and they may not be entirely accurate, but they are representing something that is frequently uh, put across our television screens, the movie theaters, uh, as, as what the male-female relationship is. And I want to say to you that both of these pictures are based on... I'm going to get this picture off here for now. Okay? <laughs> Go back here. Both of these pictures are based upon the same fundamental misunderstanding. Both pictures are based upon what I learned years ago from Steve's dad, James Orton. Uh, I learned it by reading his stuff years ago. It's called the romantic myth. Spared me many heartaches, I believe, because James opened my eyes to what our society has bought into as the romantic myth. And it's interesting, in fact, that, that we would see not only the early picture of lustful, heavy breathing excitement uh, and the later picture of the cynical disappointment both of those that might be based in the, the basic underlying theory of uh, the romantic myth that spread all over our society. But these are what you end up with one way or the other when you don't understand what real love is. Okay. For our teenagers, for our one engaged couple, for all of you who are uh, moving forward towards uh, the rest of your life, I can save you a lot of heartache right now if you will, if you will hear what I'm going to say. And I, I'm saying it with a smile, but I'm actually very serious. So most of, most of human history, uh, people got married in what's called arranged marriages. And based upon social and economic reasons, uh, a marriage would be worked out between parents and broader family units, and they would, they would get married, and then they would learn to love. And romance might develop or it might not, but that wasn't the most important thing. That's what most of human history has experienced. I'm not calling for us to go back to it, okay? 
So don't worry about that. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying there's something revealing about the way God has made us when we think about the way most of human history has viewed the marriage relationship. We can understand more about what love is supposed to be in marriage, okay? Then, more recently, things changed. Where now, romantic love is viewed as the only, the only good reason for getting married. And if you don't have that, you don't have a good reason for getting married. And two young people who don't have hardly any sense a lot of times. These young people excluded. They have lots of sense right here. I don't mean this towards them. But two young people are the only two people who know whether or not they have it. This is, it's dovetails with our uh, individualistic society. We do our own thing. We don't listen to anybody. And the most important thing is what we feel about somebody and one individual person and as one psychiatrist Frank Pittman has said the romantic myth and this may be a little too harsh but uh, he says it's a narcissistic intoxication that has no relationship to loving but is rather a response to a crisis that triggers a bigger crisis <laughs> what, what he's saying is you have these emotional crises going on in young people's lives and their response to it is to find somebody else who can look in their eyes and make them excited and think, oh, that'll meet my needs. And then they get married and there's a bigger crisis. <laughs> and problems that are passed down for generations. The romantic myth, romantic love, is based upon what C.S. Lewis called need love. Have you ever seen his old little book on the four kinds of loves? There's what he called need love and what you call gift love. Romantic myth is based on what do I get? I need you. Oh, I need you so much. And we need each other, and so let's get married. Biblical love is gift love. And we're going to talk about that next week. By the way, I've been noticing something about my sermons. They're always longer than I mean for them to be. So what I've done today is I've taken an old sermon, and I cut out one of the two points. So, next week, we'll get to that part of things on love. That's, that's the other point that would have been today. So, here, here's the, the romantic myth. People have strong feelings for each other, and they long for sexual and psychological intimacy. And so then, as they, as they do so, they idealize the other and portray them, in their minds at least, as the source that can meet all of their unmet needs. That's what happens with the romantic myth. And it's a recent innovation in human history. And may I say to you, just to be very frank about it, it is a lie, and it's ruined a lot of people's lives. Now, I'm not saying all romance is bad, okay? I think a degree of romance is a gift from God. But the way it is portrayed in our world is a lie that does great, great damage. It destroys marriages. It destroys happiness in marriage. And uh, many times it destroys people's uh, ability to grow in Christ. I will sh share with you just a little bit more about how that happens. What we have in the romantic myth is an enchantment with the other. An enchantment with another uh, person that we're in a relationship with, whether it's a man or a woman, 
that leads us to believe that that person will meet our unmet needs. And so then we pursue that relationship above everything else in our lives. So I want to respond to this romantic myth with two points, but only one of them today, okay? Um, next week I'll give you the other one. But today I want to tell you that, that the Christian response, first of all, to the romantic myth is to recognize what our first enchantment is and what the only truly fulfilling enchantment is. That's God himself. Our first enchantment is God. And this is just clearly in the scriptures. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the first and the greatest commandment. You know what that is? God will be everything. God will be the driving passion of your life. God will be exhilarating. God will be exciting. God will give you meaning. And Jesus told us, this is the first thing. This is the main thing. This is what God has made you for. And, and let us understand, because sometimes in, in Christian circles, and I've talked about this some before, because it, it's important in certain contexts, and given where given which way people lean, it's important sometimes to emphasize that, that love's not just a feeling. Love is an action. That is true. Love involves many actions. Love can be performed even when it's not felt. But don't, at the same time, make the mistake of thinking love is purely action. When we're talking about love in Scripture. Love is meant to involve all of us. The heart of the human being in Scripture, it was the seat of the emotions and the will. And what's meant to happen as we grow in Christ is that that God captivates us. He doesn't just take our obedience, but he takes our feelings with that obedience. And we become energized by God. And I want to say to you that that is the only true source for human fulfillment. We talked a couple of weeks ago about having a telos, having a, an end towards which human beings are, 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 are driven or guided towards, you know, something that we're aiming towards in life. And if we get confused about what we're made for, about what truly uh, uh, can fulfill the human heart and, and empower the human heart, then we're always going to be coming up short. We're always in our lives going to be like, well, why, why am I still not fulfilled? Well, you're not taking in the stuff that fills you. You've gotten confused about where fulfillment lies. And guys, this is just the, the basic problem with humanity. <laughs> the basic lie in the garden that Satan tells to Adam and Eve, oh, God doesn't really care about you. You've got to look out for yourself. You've got to meet your own needs. God didn't really say that. I mean, he knows, he knows you'd be better off if you did something else. This is what human beings have been struggling with uh, throughout, throughout history. Let's find our fulfillment in some other way besides God. And when you do that, when you lose the transcendent God, one of the most transcendent things, if not the most transcendent thing you'll be able to find to put in its place will be the romantic relationship between a man and a woman and the sexual relationship. And our society has taken God out of the top, and that's why you see the sex-crazed society that we're in, the seeking to meet needs, to, seek, to, to, to find human fulfillment uh, in materialistic ways. Uh, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge the brilliant British writer who had such a, such a great way with words. He said, sex 
is the mysticism of materialism. Materialism being the idea that all there is is material stuff. There's nature around us, and that's all we have. He says sex is the mysticism. It's the way people seek to transcend, even though there is nothing really to transcend to. This is what people are doing all the time in our world, seeking to find some kind of transcendence apart from God. But then we read the scriptures and we find things like this. We find things like what we read in, in Psalm... Uh, uh, oh, it's not up there. I'll have to, I'll have to open my Bible and read it. Uh, I can't go back, though. Um, there we go. Okay. Let me read to you from Psalm 63 for just a second. Oh, God... You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. What are you earnestly seeking? What are you passionately seeking in your life? I've been seeking since the, earlier this year to uh, get in shape, to lose weight, get in better shape. I haven't been earnestly seeking it. And the results are telling me that. <laughs> Just last week, I, I left my home and was away from my family for uh, nearly two weeks, a week and a half to two weeks, because uh, I'm trying uh, to uh, turn my dissertation in, into a book. I might say I'm earnestly seeking that, you know, to go into solitude basically for, for a, a lengthy time like that. You know, that's giving myself to something. What is it that you're earnestly seeking? See, the psalmist says he's earnestly seeking God. But he's seeking God because he has recognized the truth about life. My soul thirsts for you. He's recognized where his thirst actually is. And what we have in our society is... is a constant confusion about what's making us thirsty, about what can fulfill our thirst. And one of the main things, not the only thing, but one of the main things we think will fill our thirst is if we had the just right romantic relationship. And this guy has no illusions about where to fulfill his, his hunger and thirst. My soul is thirsting for you. My flesh, my body faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, this is a guy who's realized that all the other wells are dry, that all the other promises will let you down. When are you going to realize that? If you're seeking your satisfaction outside God, when are you going to realize that you have been searching for water from empty wells? The dry and weary land where there is no water. See, you're always hearing about these, I mean, you can talk about it at all levels of society, but I always think about it with the, with the, the wealthy and the beautiful, the people that a lot of people, ordinary people like us, we look at them and think, oh, well, they must have it good, right? You see somebody like a few years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who... Uh, uh, ended up, his wife divorced him. I don't, I'm not remembering her name right now, but uh, uh, it, uh, it's Marie, Marie Kennedy, Marie Shriver, yeah, okay. Um, 
And uh, his wife divorced him. Turned out he had had an affair, I think with the housekeeper or something, or, or the, the nanny or something, something like that. And you think, well, why did that happen? I mean, he was married to a beautiful woman, and probably at one point in his life, he had told her, you're everything. You're what I want for all time. You're the greatest. You're so... And, and then he, he just ends up in this other relationship with a, a random housekeeper. Why? Because he has yet to realize what he's really thirsting for. He's yet to realize what his soul is hungering for. And so he goes out seeking something else, something else to make him feel alive, something else to make him... Uh, feel that passion and that exhilaration again and he destroys his family in doing so so I have looked upon you the psalmist says in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory this means he's encountered God in worship he knows the real thing about God he knows God's power and glory and then he knows God's great love because your steadfast love, your unfailing love is better than life. Now this seems like a song we hear on the radio, but not, not about God, about some man singing to a woman somewhere. Your unfailing love is better than life and because of that my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live in your name I will lift up my hands. I'm not going to keep going through the whole chapter. It's just an example of what you find in Scripture of people who have recognized the beauty and greatness of God and have seen that what human beings are made for not being anything else. Look, if you have a good marriage, thank God. That's a gift. And we receive it as any other gift. But we don't look to that to be the ultimate satisfaction of our needs and our desires. You see... When we, when we have these wrong expectations based upon the romantic myth, we, we end up putting too much weight on that line. It's not meant to carry that much. And we load down this relationship with another individual, our spouse, and then as our life is disappointed, we blame them. And maybe we become disappointed precisely because we were expecting them to make everything better. We're expecting them to see us and to adore us and to always be doing what would please us, to, to give us the, the, uh, the fulfillment in our hearts through that relationship. And, and let me just say frankly to you, your spouse was not given to you for that. God is the one who's there for that. And we load these relationships down with those kind of expectations and then we're utterly disappointed and we're all uh, angry in our homes because we think, why didn't she do what she could have done for me? Why didn't he do what he could have done for me? See, with God as our first enchantment, the one who will never let us down, the one who is big enough for that, we no longer make such extreme demands on our marriages. And it frees us up to enjoy our marriage, just like it frees us, it frees us up to enjoy life in general. But we're not expecting any particular thing in this life 
to give us that ultimate satisfaction and that fulfillment. For that we look to the only God who made us in his image, who loves us and says, come to me. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Once you've removed God from the marriage relationship, you've removed its purpose. You've removed its power. And you've set up a world where you have to try to make your meaning without him. And ultimately, it's going to be a disappointment. And it's going to be a letdown. I want to encourage you today. I'm just going to stop there, I think. I want to encourage you today to give your heart to God. To see him in his beauty and his gloriousness and to understand that he alone is the one who can meet your deepest needs. And no one else on earth can do it. And then recognize that you can re-enter your marriage. If you're married, by the way, you don't have to be married to be happy. And uh, I learned this also from Steve's dad, James, years ago that if you're unhappy before you're married, you're probably going to be unhappy after you're married. Which is a, a telling thing in itself. But if you are married, stop putting the weight on your spouse. I'm not talking about justifying bad things that they're doing, okay? I'm just saying stop putting the weight on your spouse to fulfill you and to make you happy. That's a lie from our contemporary society it's meant to tell us things that uh, will distract us and keep us from the truth that can set us free. And that truth is found only in the beautiful and glorious God who has made us. Um, Brennan, would you come up? I'm going to go ahead and ask the praise team to come on up if you don't mind. Um, and uh, Brennan, if you wouldn't mind coming and just pray for us uh, as a church. Pray for our marriages and for our families, please. Yes, that's good. You have a good instinct. Let us stand for a blessing. This is a bit awkward because I do not know your marriages and you do not know mine. Marriage is a touchy subject. Some of you are in marriages. Some of those have a great deal of spiritual unity and some of those may be hanging on by a thread. Some of you may be hoping and dreaming about marriage someday. But some of you may not be called to marriage at all, but may live a life of holy celibacy dedicated to the Lord, just like Jesus Christ himself did. I stand before you as someone whose first love is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my beloved, my friend, with whom I have a covenant relationship. I am also someone who's been married for 20 years to my wife, through good times and bad, sickness and health, times of joy, in times of intense suffering and dysfunction. And whichever your lot is, in the spirit I would like to give you a blessing today. In the name of Jesus, I bless those who are in marriages, holy marriages with people uh, who share the same faith. And may you be strong in unity and may the Lord truly live between the two of you. For those who are in marriages who are fragile and suffering 
May you remember that Jesus Christ is your first love, and may you truly love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And may you give yourself to him no matter what befalls your future. For those of you who are hoping to be married someday, be blessed and may the Lord prepare you a spouse who will bring you on that journey toward heaven closer and closer to God and holiness. And for those of you who are not destined to be married, may the Lord dwell with you closely. May you have an intense relationship with him, knowing that you are never alone and that you may walk in his steps and join the bride of Christ on the great marriage supper of the Lamb upon his return. Marriage is a uh, platform of spiritual warfare. The devil loves to hurt people in their most vulnerable places, including marriage. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you anoint the marriages in this room and of those people who are watching by streaming service. Lord, bless them with extra strength and with extra unity and shield them against the attacks of the evil one, the lies that he wants to spread, and the discouragements and uh, the anger and the annoyance that the devil wants to plant in our marriages. We reject those and rebuke those in the name of Jesus. And may we all realize that our true enemy is the evil one, Satan, and that when our spouse annoys us, when our spouse bothers us, when our spouse mistreats us, that that person is doing that because of the leading of Satan. And may we rebuke our true energy, enemy and engage him in spiritual warfare. Finally, my brothers and sisters, I want to lead you through a, a short old wedding prayer that has been used for hundreds of years in many languages around the world. If you have a spouse with you, would you please take them by the hand? If you are hoping to be married someday, pray this about your future spouse. And if you are not married or hoping to be married, think of someone you love deeply who could use this prayer for husband and wife. Lord Jesus Christ, by your presence, you blessed the wedding in Cana and showed us that you are the true priest of mystical and pure marriage. We thank you for the day on which your heavenly blessing you joined us in the sacrament of marriage. Lord, continue to bless and enrich our marriage in love and companionship, mutual support, oneness of heart, and progress in faith and life. Protect our holy wedlock from sin, evil, and danger. Nurture between us the spirit of understanding the spirit of forgiveness, and the spirit of peace, that no resentment, quarrel, or other problems may cause us to stumble and fall. Grant us to see our own faults and not to judge each other. Keep our bonds of love always new. Gladden our lives with the joys of marriage that with one heart we may praise and glorify you. Amen. Amen.